Tonight, I want to talk about the notion of deliverance. Our child is seven months old now. We think this week that he said the word dada. <laughs> My wife and I have had some very interesting conversations recently about uh, what we're going to, you know, how, how we're going to parent him. And we had the conversation this last week, what are we going to do about Santa Claus? Are we going to tell them about Santa Claus? Are we not? And maybe even some of us in here still believe in Santa Claus. <laughs> and if that's true, that, hey, I'm not going to, that, that's great. But I, I, we really wrestled with this idea of, you know, do we tell him? Do, do we not? Telling him about the Easter bunny. I mean, it's just funny parenting things that you never think that you'd have to deal with. I was listening to a story. My aunt was telling me about my nephew who's 10 months old. Actually, this is my stepsister and, and her son, who's about 10 years old. And he came home from school recently, and he, he said to his, his mom, he said, you know, I, I just don't, um, I don't think I believe in Santa anymore. And she said back to him, oh, really? Because if you don't believe, then you're not getting any gifts this Christmas. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, wait, 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 I believe. <laughs> I believe. I've just got questions. <laughs> All of us have reasons for believing. And I'm quickly turning from the conversation about Santa Claus to Christ. Why we believe in, in Jesus. I'm going to be honest with you. It would be, make your life a whole lot easier if you didn't believe. Why do you believe? I can tell you why I believe. It wasn't because somebody had the most compelling argument uh, about why Jesus resurrected from the grave and the 10 historical facts, why we know that happened. That, that's not why I believe. Um, I don't believe because, uh, because of the idea that God makes our life better or cleaner, less messy. I don't believe because of that. Following Jesus has created a lot of new obstacles for me. I believe because there was a day a long time ago that I went uh, to the tomb and I saw that the tomb was empty. I believe because, not because of the greatest argument, I believe because I have seen the resurrected Jesus transform a really broken guy like myself into somebody who could actually love his neighbor, his wife, and for heaven's sake, his kid. Why do you believe? Paul writes a, what I think to be maybe one of the most profound books in all of scripture. He writes a letter to this church in Philippi. He loves this church. I have to tell you, he has a, a real love affair with this church. He just, he's joyful about it. He's thankful for them. He... Um, at one point in the first chapter, he even says, almost self-admittingly, he's almost embarrassed. He says, I, I, I don't even know if it's okay for me to, to feel this way about all you guys. Like, it's, it's too much love. He, he says the word joy, kara in Greek, he says the word joy, that he's joyful for them or that he's joyful about God nearly 16 times in the book. He just is in love with this church. And I'm not saying that he's not in love with every church. There are some churches... He's meaner to than others. When he writes the, to the church in Corinth, the first 
the first book, uh, uh, first letter to the Corinthians, uh, he lays into them and he tells them that they have forgotten the gospel in the book of Galatians. He says, you've missed it. You used to believe, but now you're just trying to work your way into God's love. But in this book, he just loves them. He's joyful. He's thankful. Now, you should know before we read this small passage that Paul is writing to a church while he himself is imprisoned, which is very common for Paul. Whenever Paul would write a letter, oftentimes in many of these letters, he would have been either behind bars or he would have been in house arrest. Now, I don't want to give you a false picture of what's going on here. Paul is in prison in Rome, but he's not behind bars. He's under what we would call house arrest. Kevin, can I borrow you for a moment? Would you come up here for a second? Um, it, it would work something like this, that when, if, if I was, yeah, um, that if I, uh, if I'm Paul, uh, house arrest would work something like this. I would be imprisoned in someone's home, most likely either my own or somebody, somebody that I would know. I couldn't go anywhere. And the way it would work would be, there would be a prison guard, a Roman prison guard who would literally be strapped to my side. So as we stand up here, what would typically happen is they would take the prisoner and the, the guard and they would strap them together at the feet, which would mean that the guard would be with this guy everywhere he goes. There were actual specific laws in Rome that said that a guard could only be strapped to a prisoner for up to six hours because there are instances of guards getting really annoyed at soldier at, at the people imprisoned and killing them. <laughs> and so you could only be strapped to somebody for a certain amount of time because you didn't want to drive the person crazy. Now, when Paul writes this letter, I, I want you to listen. We're strapped together right here. You got to imagine that as Paul is writing this letter, he probably has a big, huge, massive Roman soldier strapped to his side. I mean, look at these, right? <laughs> that he's strapped to some guy and he's having to write this letter to this church. Listen to what he says. <laughs> he says in verse 12, I don't want you brothers uh, to think that what has really happened to me is bad. I, I, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel, he says. And as a result, it's become clear throughout, listen to this, throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Now I want you to imagine this soldier is looking over Paul's shoulder as he's writing that. And he's saying this, he's saying, you guys, don't feel bad for me that I'm in prison because I got news for you. <laughs> By me being in prison, I'm getting, I'm getting to share Christ with people. And this soldier's like looking over his shoulder, going like, who are you sharing Christ with? <laughs> and you can almost see Paul just smirk like, It's about you, bucko. <laughs> That's why I'm here. I'm here because for Paul, going to prison wasn't going to prison. It was a mission trip. Thank you for standing up here for so long. 
For Paul, being put in prison was he being sent by Jesus. You know why he was put in prison? I'm going to read the rest of the section. He was put in prison because he was running around telling people that Jesus was Lord. And if you say that Jesus is Lord, there's an implication to that. The implication is that Caesar is not Lord. Which means this, the Romans had a word for preaching the gospel. It was called treason. Because you were basically saying, the guy that you call Caesar is not the son of God. I know the son of God and it is not him. So for Paul, his idea of being in prison is he's, he's sent there. Like this, this was where God had sent him to be. And he says this, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter they do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they construct trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or from true ones, that Christ is preached. And because of this, I will rejoice and I will continue rejoicing for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Could you say amen with me tonight? Amen. Amen. Paul is writing this letter and in the middle of it, he says, I am being delivered. And I'm gonna argue tonight, I would suggest to you that one of the reasons that you believe in the gospel of Jesus is that at the deepest level of who you are, you want to be delivered too. You know, in the last, uh, how, how does God do this? How does God deliver us? In the last uh, like 150 years, there have been a lot of really interesting books that have been written about this guy, Paul. Many of us might have conceptions about what we think about Paul. I remember when I became a Christian at 16 years old, the year that I became a Christian was the same year that the movie Braveheart came out. So for me, the two are very synonymously connected in many respects. And so I always imagined Paul, the missionary, the, the apostle, as being this sort of um, William Wallace-esque character. Uh, kind of this big strapping man who carried around like a massive Bible with him who would show up at coffee shops and people would just flock to him and he was adored, everybody loved him, he sold books in the foyer, he was just sort of this, <laughs> this, this incredible figure who everybody was attracted to. And what's really incredibly, really weird is, is that that probably isn't even close to what the actual Paul was like. Um, yeah, a number of scholars in the last couple of years have written books on who the real Paul would have been like. And from the evidence, not only in scripture, but uh, from stuff that was around Paul, there, the picture of Paul is actually quite different than that. We know that from some of the earliest paintings of Paul, that Paul uh, was actually uh, an older man who was probably quite short. Uh, many people believe Paul was actually bald. A number of Bible scholars believe that he was blind, and they, they believe this because at one point in, the gospel, in, in one of his letters, he says, I have to write with such large letters. Many people believe he had a vision problem. Uh, he was a really bad speaker. 
He says in one of his letters, I, I'm not an eloquent speaker. You know this, you've been listening to my podcast. Um, I don't show up and give you incredible sermons. I just show up and preach the gospel and stuff happens. I'm not one of those super apostles that you guys know about. I'm, I'm not a very good speaker. Uh, he wasn't supported. Paul had to make tents for a living. He wasn't receiving a full-time paycheck to do the ministry that he was do to, doing. Paul was not loved. He was hated. How do we know that Paul was hated? When you look in the book of Acts, every time Paul goes into a city and preaches in a new city, you find that in almost every occasion, Paul would enter a city, preach, and what would happen? He would be thrown out of the city and stoned nearly to death, or at least attempted to be killed. People hated him. He had scars on his back. In another letter, he says, I have the marks of Jesus on my body, which he is undeniably referring to the moments that he had been beat for his faith. I bet you if Paul was in this room and he took his shirt off, most of you would have to turn away. That the scars on his body would have been so deep, so red and painful. And, and now here, here, here's what's crazy to me, is all of these things, I'm giving you like just the worst picture of Paul. I mean, he, everybody hates him. Nobody believes in him. Even the churches don't know if he's an apostle. He has to argue, no, like, really, I'm an apostle. I'm not kidding you. He has to defend himself. He's got scars on his body. He's hated. He's balding. He's small. He's not really eloquent and big. He's not an incredible speaker. He's run out of town. People don't believe in him. He sometimes doesn't even believe in himself. He's constantly being put in prison. And in every single letter this guy writes, this is what blows me away. In every letter this guy writes, he always talks about hope. How is that possible? I was reading one guy, Rodney Reeves, who's a Paul scholar. He said this, that either Paul had something so different about himself that you can't deny, or Paul himself was in complete denial. It's that moment in greeting time that you just had. You know, we just did the little greeting time. Thank you for leading us in that awkward five minutes. It's important, by the way. I believe greeting times are important. We need to do them, but they're awkward. And they're worse. This is my least favorite moment in greeting time is when I'm sitting next to somebody and I turn to say something to them and I say, hey, how are you doing? And they give me the most plastic smile. And they go, I'm great. And I know them because I'm their pastor and I follow them on Twitter and I know them on Facebook. <laughs> And I know, dude, you're lying to me. You're going through a divorce. You're running out of money. You don't have a job. Don't lie to me. I know you. Paul was so incredibly filled with hope that if he came in this room, I'll bet you anything, you wouldn't believe he was being real. Because his hope never, ever, ever made sense. And I've got to say something about that, that idea of hope is that hope in the Bible is never realistic. It is always never dependent on your circumstance, the stuff that's surrounding you. Because if Paul was depending his hope on that was around him, friends, he has no hope. He's in prison and he's strapped to a really, really big Roman guy who's probably going to kill him. 
but yet he always has hope. Ultimately, the idea of deliverance is dependent on the idea that you and I have not given up on God. And I've got to say, for many of us, and in particular for many in my own generation, or 30, 25, 20, 18, somewhere in this realm, the young and the restless, as I call them, for many of them, they have given up on the idea that God is actually a hopeful God. And not only them, but perhaps you're in that same place. In order to understand deliverance, we have to start with the idea of hope. Paul is hopeful in all circumstance. And for us, we must be hopeful right where we're at. Now, two things Paul says happens for his deliverance. He says two things take place. If you're taking notes, this would be one thing I would encourage you to write down, is that Paul says about this church in Philippi, he says, I, my deliverance has come through your prayers. It has come because I know that you've been praying for me. He says there's two things, that you've been praying for me and that the Spirit helps me. But he, he says, you know, the first thing is this, I know this. I know that you have been praying for me, which is, I find profound. Um, it's, it's an odd picture that, that Paul is saying, you know, that these really small, I, I don't know what your prayer life looks like. I know what mine looks like. Most of my prayers are sanctified wines. Most of my prayers happen um, uh, on the five-minute drive to work when I'm eating a Nutri-Grain bar and there's coffee spilling all over my radio. Um, it's the, the minute I get up in the morning, I'm in the shower, and I'm like, God, I don't know what I'm doing today, so I really need you to do something about that. Um, and, and Paul says, he says, um, I'm being delivered because you've been praying for me, which I find very striking because he doesn't say that they've been praying incredible prayers. He just says, you've been praying for me. It's a pretty incredible image of something small uh, and insignificant as a prayer. These, these little tiny prayers affecting this really, really big God. Like the small stuff is affecting this really big stuff and the small and the big combine and big listens to the small and God does something about these little tiny uh, little tiny prayers that, that we talk about. I mean, even as, even as a pastor, I confess to you that sometimes when I'm praying for people, they're the most pathetic prayers in the world. I mean, oftentimes when somebody comes to me and says, AJ, I need, I need you to pray for me, I'll go dutifully and with joy put my hands on them and I'll, I'll start to pray. And I'll say, God, you know, and by the way, I'll typically forget their name in the middle of the prayer. So I have to say, Lord, you, you know this brother more than I do. Uh, my sister, uh, you're with them. God, you know them better than I do. As if God's like, oh, really? Do I? Interesting. Thank you. <laughs> We're reminding God, you created them. I know, I was there. <laughs> God, you know this person. And, we keep, and, we, and I'll, I'll pray for him. And typically my prayers are just so... I'm so simple, God, you know, like you, you know this person and, and I don't and you need to, you need to help them. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> right? I mean, just the most insignificant <laughs> prayers. 
I forget their name. I forget everything. And, and God listens to that. <laughs> the small stuff changes God. I'm not saying it changes God, but the small stuff, as insignificant as it is, actually affects the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus describes the kingdom of God like a seed. He says the, king, the kingdom of God is like a small seed that grows and becomes the biggest weed that you can imagine. A mustard seed, which is a weed. It's like an inside joke that it's gonna become the biggest weed problem you've ever had. And it's gonna take over and you can't stop it. But think about that image. The image is of something small that takes over something really, really, really big. And when Paul says that your prayers have brought deliverance to me, he is saying the kingdom of God is in work in your pathetic little prayers. How many of you do this thing? I don't know if you do this. I do this in Portland. I live in urban Portland. All my neighbors think I'm cool for doing this. I've heard, have you heard of it? It's called recycling. You heard of this? One person, I'm so proud of the three of you, four, five, back there, wonderful, I applaud you. And all of us who live in Portland, thank you. Sam, Sam Adams, we love you. Thank you for giving us the compost things that go on our tables. I don't know if you got these, but in Portland now we have these compost containers that are on our, our tables that we can put all of our scraps in and they'll take the scraps away and, and then they'll, they're brilliant. They'll actually sell your garbage back to you so that you can plant stuff in the backyard. It's a brilliant business plan. But you take these compost things with all your scraps and you put them in there. You put them in your garbage bin. They take it away. They put it in a big field and they let it just compost. And then it becomes compost. And I didn't know this. There's a rule about the compost. You're not supposed to put seeds in the compost. Did you know that? You know why? Because if you put seeds in the compost, you're literally, I mean, you could start like whole groves of plants in the compost field. And I didn't know this. So because of me, there's like avocado trees and like... <laughs> I didn't, know, I didn't know any of this stuff. The kingdom of God is a seed, which means this. If you take really, really small stuff and you do it, God will act. I wanna, I wanna impress something upon you and I wanna repent of something that I just said because I don't believe in something that I just said. There is no such thing in the kingdom of God as an insignificant prayer. That when you stop and you talk to God on someone's behalf, you don't know how big that is for, for God. In fact, do this for a moment. I don't want to belabor this. Close your eyes if you wouldn't mind. And for just a moment, if the Lord has impressed someone on your heart or your mind to pray for and you haven't or you feel compelled to right now, just very quickly, not out loud, I don't want to belabor this, just very quickly pray for that person. Lord, hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul says, your, your prayers have been changing me. They've been delivering me. But he's, he doesn't stop there. He says, not only your prayers, um, but the Spirit of God has been delivering me. And the Spirit has been in the prison cell with him and the spirit is helping him. There are many images of the spirit in the scriptures. Uh, the first image is in the very first chapter of the Bible. It's the, uh, the story of the, the spirit hovering over the chaos, 
the Ruach, the Spirit of God that hovers. But, but it goes beyond that. The, the Spirit in Scripture is sometimes wind, sometimes it's fire, sometimes it's breath. Sometimes the image of the Spirit is that of a dove. All of these images have one thing in common. Not one of these things you can bottle up. You can't bottle up fire, it will die. You cannot bottle up wind, you cannot bottle up breath, and you certainly cannot bottle up a dove. Which means this, I don't control the Holy Spirit and I cannot get up here and fake it to make the Spirit come and do something powerful among you. And if I could, that's manipulation and it's a show. The Spirit moves where the Spirit wants to move. Jesus says in the book of John chapter three, the Spirit comes and goes and you, you don't even know where it is. It's this thing that goes. But all of these images of the Spirit leave out one of the most important images and that is the image that Jesus gives to his disciples in the book of John chapter 14. Jesus says in John chapter 14, I must go away and go to heaven. And if I go, the Spirit will come and it will lay upon you and it will be in you and with you. The image that Jesus offers to the church in John 14 of the spirit that will come is what Jesus calls the parakletos, the helper. I wish ultimately there was some English word that made sense here. I, I'm trying to think really of, uh, of an image that makes sense of a helper who comes to, uh, to be with you because there, there really is no equatable image in English to this idea. The, the only way that I can really describe what Jesus is talking about is to describe for you the afternoon that my wife gave birth to our child. It was August 16th. Uh, about three in the afternoon. And I began to notice that my wife's demeanor began to change modestly. And she began to feel some pain. We took her to the hospital and the doctor checked her to see, we, th we think she's you know, beginning to progress. And the doctor said, you're progressing, you're not there yet. So what we need you to do is... Uh, we need you to go to the, the mall and walk around for a couple hours. So we went to the mall as my wife began to give birth. We go to the Washington Square Mall and we began walking around. And I began to notice a pattern was developing in the way she was walking. We would walk for five to seven minutes. And out of nowhere, she would just sort of And then she would be back. We would walk seven minutes. Five minutes. And I began to notice that her, uh, that her pain levels began to increase and her patience for me began to decrease. And I grew up watching Co the Cosby show, so I thought she was gonna you know, say things to me like, you did this to me. She never did that. She never got to that point, but I could tell like she got down to maybe you know, just under five minutes and she just started, this is stupid. So I said, okay, let's go to the hospital. So we go to the hospital. 
We say to the doctor, it's gotten, it's gotten to the point we think she's getting close to the doctor. She says, yep, you're there. So we go into the room and we, we intended, I mean, the dream was that we were going to have the baby uh, with, with, no, with no drugs, that we were going to do it, uh, um, you know, with no drugs. <laughs> That's what we thought when we went into the room and then, and then realized that that was the dumbest idea ever. <laughs> I had an epidural, but she, she, <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't get one. But the process started, and it was just, I, I wish, I, for those of you who have, have been in the room, it, I, I can't. I, it was the most beautiful thing to be with my wife in that moment. To, she, she would grab the, um, she'd grab the table, and she would just, she would scream, ah, and I would, I would go up to her, and I would grab her by the arms, and I would just be face to face with her. And to just be with her in that moment. And I remember she would scream, ah! And I would just stand there and I would go, I'm with you. And I would breathe with her. I remember the breathing. I almost passed out like 10 times. It was insane. And I would just breathe with her and we would be there. Now, a lot of people do this thing. They, they, they have these things called doulas. Do you know what a doula is? A doula is a helper. It's a, somebody who's in the room who helps facilitate the birth. We didn't have a doula, but we did have a friend by the name of Katie Thickus who was in the room with us. And Katie was there for every moment. I would be with Quinn. I'd be screaming, Katie. McQuinn would go, I'm Thursday. And Katie would go get a glass of water and bring it over and just put it on her lips. And she would take ice and she would bring it over and just put it on her side of The Holy Spirit is your doula. Which means that your husband is not. <laughs> and your children are not. Your wife is not. Your parents are not. Your pastor is not. You have one helper. And the helper lives in you. You know, so often, I don't know about you, but I tend to like to put things in God's place in my life. Boy, if I just had a, a better pastor or a better church, or if I had a better this or that. And I'm struck by the image of Paul in a prison cell all alone. And he's saying, my helper is with me. Friends, you did not accept your pastor as your Lord and Savior. You accepted Jesus, and Jesus promised you that the Spirit would live in you. And I tell you this, deliverance for Paul doesn't mean that he's going to get out of prison. The sad part of this story, Paul's actually going to die in this prison cell. You know what's profound about that? Is he says, I'm being delivered anyway. You know what that means? It means this, for Paul, deliverance is not being freed from your prison cell. It is being freed within it. Be free. Because the Spirit of God is in your cell with you. You are not alone. What does this look like? I want to close with a story of a people that I believe were delivered, and then we'll finish up. And I want to make one comment, if I could, 
Friends, deliverance is not easy. It is always painful. There is no such thing as an epidural for God's deliverance. It is always painful. It is always hard. But I make the promise that I didn't come up with. It's in the red letters in your Bible that Jesus promised you that he would not leave you nor forsake you and he would send his spirit to be with you. And if that is true, then no help that you need from anyone else is gonna work. The help you are looking for is in you in your prison cell. What does that look like? October 2nd, 2006, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a young 25-year-old man goes into an Amish schoolhouse and shoots and kills 12, 13 young children. Do you remember this story? Since that uh, occasion in 2006, a number of the children have been interviewed for television, uh, for books. And a number of the kids who were in that schoolhouse when that young man came in with a gun have testified that as some of the children were being shot and killed, that they looked up at the man and many of them before they were shot said the words, we forgive you and we love you. The Amish believed so much in forgiveness that they invited the entire family of the man who did the shooting to the funeral. And they did this because they believed that they themselves needed to be delivered or they would constantly be trapped. And I've got to say, they didn't get their idea of deliverance or forgiveness from the television. They're Amish. They got it from somewhere else. And I say to you, the deliverance that you are looking for, you will not find on television. You will not find it in books. You will not find it necessarily in a church you will find the deliverance that you are looking for in Jesus Christ alone. And if you are humble enough to admit to Jesus that you need him to be with you, his promise has not expired. He will be with you and never forsake you. Do you want to be delivered?